Hello, and welcome to the Christ Lutheran Church Sermon Podcast. This is Matthew Best. I serve as pastor of Christ Lutheran Church in Allison Hill in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Thanks for being here. If today's message connects with you and what you're going through, brings you inspiration, or offers connection with God, I ask you to please stay on after the message for just a few moments to learn ways to connect with the congregation and the health ministries that we offer. And now, let's dive into God's Word. A reading from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6. Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked. What's the wisdom that has been given to him? What are these remarkable miracles he is performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives, and in his own home. He cannot do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village, calling the twelve to him. He began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick with oil and healed them. King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said, He is Elijah. And still others claimed, He is a prophet, like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to, because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, Ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath. Whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, What should I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once the girl hurried to the king with the request, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths 
and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison, and brought him back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. On hearing this, John's disciples came, took his body, and laid it in a tomb. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I have a cousin. Her name is Jessica, and she is a, an incredible singer. Um, it's what she does professionally. She's a mezzo-soprano opera singer and teaches students and has traveled to various places, performed in incredible um, settings. Uh, just and On top of that, she's just a wonderful person. And she, uh, this weekend, I, I was not able to go to this, unfortunately, but this weekend she's the stage manager, so she's putting on an opera called The Dialogues of the Carmelites. And The Dialogues of the Carmelites, it's an opera, it's a story of uh, Carmelite nuns set during the French Revolution, during the Reign of Terror. And if you know anything about that period of history, there's a good reason why it's named the Reign of Terror. Okay, <laughs> yes, off with your head. <clears throat> um, so it's the end of the 18th century, and uh, you got Robespierre, who was this tyrant. There's guillotines, you know, one of the things the French invented, <clears throat> swift way to cut people's head off. Uh, and they're guillotining all those that are considered enemies of the revolution, primarily those that are nobility and those that are religious, uh, primarily priests, but also uh, nuns and other folks of the first estate is what they had called them. So kind of the, the decision makers, those that are in a, some level of authority in the, the French uh, system at the, at the time, right? And so uh, a decision is made that... Uh, the legislative assembly decides we're going to take over all of the all of the, the the churches, the convents, and, and all this type of stuff. So somebody is sent there to tell the nuns that the convent and the property have become the property of the revolutionary government, uh, and that they have to renounce their vows and their habits. The habit is what they are wearing, their religious uh, garbs. They have to renounce it. They have to put on so-called regular clothes, peasant clothes, um, and they cannot continue doing what, what they're doing. Um, and uh, they can't do proclamation of the gospel because this revolution is trying to wipe out Christianity as well out of France. And so they're eventually, there are 16 nuns, they're eventually arrested and sentenced for execution by the guillotine. And so this opera has this dramatic and moving last scene. You can YouTube this, and I would encourage it. It's, uh, you could, uh, Salve Regina, the, the uh, dialogues of the Carmelites. And uh, it's this moving scene where you see each of the 16 nuns standing up individually, walking towards the back through a group of soldiers. And the each, as each one walks through, the soldiers close, 
and you hear shh 16 times. It's very moving. They, the nuns pay this ultimate price for faith and become heroic martyrs for the faith. So I asked her, I asked Jess, I said, what, why this play? Why now? I'm really curious. She had told me about it a few weeks ago when I was visiting family for a funeral. And uh, we were talking about, you know, she's doing this play, this, uh, the opera. And so this week I thought, this really fits incredibly well with our, our gospel reading. So I was curious, why, why this opera? Of all the things, and she has par- participated in this opera twice before, so she's very familiar with it. And this is her first time putting it on. And she said, well... I look at political unrest in the world, and it really speaks to political unrest. She's reminded of the reign of terror and trying to eliminate and silence those in opposition. Art has a way of also being kind of political and theological at the same time in a way that is approachable for for folks. It's a form of political expression and a way to express faithfulness. It's a story that she said that goes to all civilizations and all times. That there are people who don't want there to be those that are different. And some are willing to pay the ultimate sacrifice. And yet in the midst of this, there is hope. In the midst of this dramatic ending scene, There's hope. I thought that was really interesting. And I think it fits so well with what we hear in Mark's sixth chapter here today. Because we've got Mark, of course, back to throwing us a whole bunch of stories all at once. And this is just the first 29 verses of chapter 6. We've got three stories. You've got Jesus going to his hometown and being rejected. And it says, he was amazed at their lack of faith. The place that you would least expect that he would be rejected, his own hometown. Part of that is, if you go back and, and look at what these, the folks in his hometown are saying, they knew him. They'd known him since he was a kid. He grew up there. He went to synagogue with these people. He went to whatever, the market, and all this type of stuff. They know him. Who, is, who's the, who does he think he is? Where did he get all this knowledge? Does he think he's better than the rest of us and trying to get out of here? That's the underlying critique. Who does he think he is? Is he better than us? He gets rejected in his hometown. And yet, there's hope. Then we have Jesus taking the 12, and he sends them out in groups of two, and gives them authority over over impure spirits, and he gives them instructions. And I I think what's not said here in in these instructions, although it's there, 
He says, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Jesus is saying, you're going to be rejected. Y'all just were with me in my own hometown. You're going to be rejected. How do you deal with that? Do you act like the folks that were in my hometown, or how do you treat people? What are you going to do? Are you going to meet violence in whatever form that is with violence, or there's another way to just go? And then we have this, uh, this passage that Mark spends a good amount of time playing with time is really the idea. The last we heard about John the Baptist was in uh, Mark 1, where we hear that uh, John was arrested. And there's been this kind of pause, and people are probably wondering, well, what happened to John? He got arrested. Did they just throw away the key and that's it? Well, now we hear what happens to John. So while Jesus is sending these disciples out and they're going around to the towns, word is getting around, and Herod, who's the king, is afraid because he killed a righteous and holy man by his own account, and he thinks that John is coming back to haunt him. And so Mark recounts what happens to John, that there's this beheading, this brutal beheading from people that are all in fear and angry and upset. And even though there's this perception of power, there's not. Herod has power because Rome decided that he would be the client king. Herod doesn't have any power. As soon as he would go against Rome, you know what would happen to Herod? He'd be gone. Yes, probably his head cut off, right? And even in the midst of this, he makes an, a ridiculous promise to his daughter-in-law it's kind of a weird way of saying it because we don't know if there's this legitimacy in this marriage or whatever, but Herodias, let's just call her. She's Herodias. It's, uh, that is, uh, who's, Herodias is the wife of Philip, Herod's brother, who Herod marries. This is like an episode of Dr. Phil. <clears throat> And then you have, you have Herodias' daughter. I'm sorry, there we go. See, it's tough to keep track of all this. And so she goes in and she dances and pleads Herod, and he makes this ridiculous promise of, you know, ask me for anything, even up to half my kingdom. It's over the top. It's ridiculous. And so Her Herodias' daughter goes back to Herodias. Hey, what should I ask for? Well... John the Baptist has been really upsetting me because I'm in a nice position now. So off with his head. And the daughter one-ups it. Give me his head on a platter. <clears throat> Who's in charge? And of course, Herod has to honor it. He's the king, and yet he trapped himself in the midst of all this. In the midst of all of these stories... There are two themes that come up. The way the world operates, 
and the way of God. The way the world operates oftentimes is through violence and cruelty and rejection. And the way of Jesus, the way of the kingdom of God is far different. There's a quote that I have here from this book called uh, Mark as Story, an Introduction to the Narrative of the Gospel. This was in one of the commentaries on this reading. And this is what the authors wrote. Rome, or any empire, works from the center out. God's reign begins at the margins and works inward. In the wilderness, initiating a new sociopolitical or political order. Rome works from the top down. God's reign starts from the bottom up. A peasant movement spreading like invasive mustard plants. Rome secures the strongest of its people and exploits the weak. God's reign restores the weakest and the most vulnerable. This is what we are seeing in these stories. The hometown of Jesus was under occupation, and all they were trying to do was just survive. And if Jesus was going to upset things, well, who do you think you are? Be gone. Hey, disciples, when you go out, it's most likely that you're going to be rejected. Don't expect that the way of God, the kingdom of God, is welcomed everywhere you go. It's not. It's a bad assumption to assume that when we live the way of Jesus, that everyone's going to like it. And John the Baptist, not really a threat, but John probably, the <laughs> in seminary I learned a, a sermon, one of the ways of, of doing a sermon is that it's comforting the afflicted and afflicting the comfortable. I think John's little sermon here certainly lives into that. It afflicted the comfortable so much that it cost him his head. <clears throat> there was a, uh, a presentation that uh, a friend of mine had sent me uh, from a, a, a seminary professor down in, in Texas, and he had asked the question to a group of, uh, of folks that he was presenting. He said, you know, if you had to summarize Christianity into one word, what would you, what would you say? So I'm going to ask you. What, if you had to summarize Christianity into, uh, on the spot, I know. <laughs> what is it? Radical. Radical. Okay, good. What else? Love. Love, that's the most common answer, of course, right? Right? What else? What? Pacifism. Pacifism, okay. All right. Anything else? The other words that, that he had gotten in response were, Grace, mercy, forgiveness, discipleship. He was like, oh, somebody was really paying attention in class. <laughs> he said, but nobody answered with what he thought was the right answer. Hope. If you had to define Christianity in one word, he said it would be hope. If you look at all the letters of Paul, even if the critical ones, there's a message of hope. If you look at the letters from uh, that Peter, that are ascribed to Peter, there's a message of hope. Even in, 
even in the uh, Old Testament, you have this kind of preview of hope. Even when, when things are not going well, God's always coming back. God is coming back to restore. Even Revelation, with all of its death and destruction, you get to Revelation 21 and 22, talk about hope. The tree of life in the center of the city, which is full of leaves for the healing of the nations. Oof, that's not hopeful. I don't know what is. Hope. Everything else relies on hope. That's why we're here. That's why we're here. That's why I do what I do. I need as much hope as all the rest of you. I'm preaching to myself more often than not of a message that I need to hear. It's a message of hope that the things that happen outside of the walls of the church, sometimes inside or wherever, it doesn't matter. That's not the way that not only that God intended, but that's not the way that God calls us to be. God calls us to be living different from the way of the world. When the world wants to live in rejection, God has this radical way of bringing people in. And just, you're welcome. You're welcome here. Whoever you are, whatever you've gone through, you're welcome. Not only are you welcome to be here, but you're welcome to receive from the table of God. Because you have value, you have worth. You matter. That's hopeful. Everything is about hope. And even in the midst of this, when you have this story of the beheading of John the Baptist, this grisly affair, and it seems like everything is hopeless, well, it goes, it goes really bad for John the Baptist, right? Mark has given us a preview. Mark is playing with time. He's given us a preview. Because at the end, right, John's head is delivered on a platter, and then you get verse 29. On hearing this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Remind you of anybody else? <laughs> Jesus. It's a preview of what's going to happen to Jesus. The world is not going to accept what Jesus has to offer. and The world will, will meet it with violence and cruelty and rejection. But Jesus has an invitation for a better way. A hope. Resurrection is about life, death, and resurrection. It's about hope for a better future. Hope. I, I, you know, I used to do politics. And I always described it as politics and religion are essentially the same thing, which sounds maybe kind of weird. But at their core, what are they offering? A vision of a possible future. A vision of a possible future. A hope-filled future. One in which violence is not the way. One in which people are not rejected, but are welcomed in. That the table becomes longer. 
that strangers are seen as having the image of God and not just pushed away and seen as, as a danger and a threat. Where those that are lacking resources are not just seen because of what they don't have. And those that are well off are not just seen also dehumanized for what they have and only seen for what they have. But instead seeing the humanity of people. And that we all have gifts and we all have challenges. We're all healing and broken at the same time. That there is hope that no matter how different people are, they can live in the same space together. That's a beautiful vision. I want to end with going back to the dialogues of the Carmelites. My cousin really emphasized the idea of there is hope and not fear. She said, one nun in the story, Blanche, she came from a wealthy family. She's part of that first estate, and she's trying to figure out her way through life. And she takes, uh, she becomes part of this Carmelite order, takes this vow of poverty, and chooses to go as a daughter of God. There is suffering for one another in this story, and choosing how to react. What's happening? Is it with violence that's being done to these nuns, or? Even if they have to renounce their habits and everything, how do they respond? Is it violence or is it service and self-giving love? Is it the empire's way or God's way? Power and the seeking of power or love? Is it hope or is it fear? They respond in community, fear or hope. One of the nuns was away at the time of the arrests miraculously, and this is actually true because this is based on a true story. She was not there when the other, the rest of the nuns were arrested, and so a priest had said, God saved you for a reason. You cannot go back to them and die with them. And so she ends up leaving France, coming to the United States, And starts recruiting other women to become part of the Sisters of St. Joseph, which is what the order is. And it builds, and it grows. And as a result of this, these sisters are dedicated to education. And so they start opening schools all over the place, both in the United States and other countries, and one of those schools was where Jessica was doing the opera for their 100th anniversary of the school being there, thanks to a Carmelite sister who was spared. And because she was spared, had this incredible impact, positive impact of bringing education to countless people. And as we all know, education is a way of offering hope for people to better themselves, to raise themselves up, to be in community, to learn, to grow, to live out faith.
the dialogues of the Carmelites is gruesome, and yet it's full of hope of what is possible because of what God is doing in people and the hope that God offers something that's so much better than what the world offers. Thanks be to God. Thank you again for listening to the Sermon Podcast. I'm always happy to have a conversation or pray with you. Please reach out either by email to pastor at christharrisburg.org or call me at 717-236-8382. I'd also invite you to be part of worship on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. We're a very diverse, open, affirming, and laid-back congregation. Christ Lutheran Church is located at 124 South 13th Street in Harrisburg. Parking is along the street. You can enter the building through the side entrance on South 13th Street or at the corner of 13th and Thompson Streets. And lastly, check us out on the web. Our website is ChristHarrisburg.org. There you can learn more about and offer your support for the congregation as well as the health ministries and free clinics that we provide to people in need in our neighborhood. I invite you to follow us on Facebook and Instagram also at Christ Lutheran Harrisburg. Thank you. I look forward to connecting with you, and I pray that you have a blessed week.